while that message was playing, we got the thumbs up from the phone room. Very good news that we did surpass that match of $400 beach in Oakland, Linda, and San Carlos. Thank you very much, and I want to thank all of those of you who called and subscribed. Also, uh, Gorilla Cafe, Betty's Ocean View Diner, Juan's Place, Veritable Vegetable, uh, Three Stone Hearth Community Kitchen, Rainbow Grocery, uh, Numi Tea, Whole Foods, and Peaberry's Coffee and Tea, all of whom are helping to feed and sustain the people in the phone room. Thanks to the phone room volunteers as well. This is KPFA or KPFB Berkeley, KFCF Fresno, kpfa.org. Please keep calling 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-439-5732. Time now for Cover to Cover today, Stone's Throw with the one and only Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture, drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Somebody's trying to get in. <laughs> no, thank you. They handed me a piece of paper which says that my premium today... Let me just tell you this before I start. And then uh, I'm stuffing my face here with the Mexican wedding cookies of Amelia Gonzalez. God bless her bones. She's feeding me. She knows how to treat volunteers. And this note says, don't forget today's food donors, the Gorilla Cafe, Benny's Ocean View Diner, Wands Place. Oh, I love Wands. I used to go there and eat enchiladas. Back before I had to worry about <laughs> my liver. Also, Veritable Vegetable, Three Stone Hearth Community Kitchen, Rainbow Grocery Cooperative, Teon's, Numi Tea Whole Foods, Peaberries Coffee and Tea, also, you can get a KPFA cap and a KPFA t-shirt. I got those. I love those. Uh-huh. Anyway, you get a bumper sticker. <laughs> if you, yeah, just a bona fide voting member, 25 bucks. That's all you have to send. Most people like to send 60 bucks, or we like to ask for 60 bucks. And I have a book here. I brought a, a memoir of my own, written by moi, called Telegraph Avenue Then. I remember when it first came out, I had a book party and there was a riot somewhere and I put a sign on the door in the little bookstore down in a mall in Berkeley and said, uh, book party canceled due to the fall of Western civilization. And uh, uh, <laughs> it got picked up, it got picked up and it got in the Chronicle. <laughs> Those were the days, you know, when you could get in Herb Cain's column just by being a smarty pants. Anyway, 
let's see. I've got to get myself together here. Put my lipstick on. Always put your lipstick on when you're on Cape Effect. And see what we've got here. As I said, the premium today is a book of mine own um, called Telegraph Avenue Then. It is a memoir, and it comes along with the $60 membership. In case you want to call ahead, at the end of this half hour, I will start rattling off the uh, phone numbers and asking you for money. It says here to say slowly that our number is 510-848-5732. You've been listening to Philip say that for so long. I'll lay off for a minute. I have a list of anti-war movies, and I have a list of all the things we're supposed to do and see and experience so that we are proper activists. Oh, lordy, lordy, I can't keep up. I don't know how anybody manages to do it. Uh, I just think every time we ask for money, uh, I I pause <laughs> when these requests go out because, oh, I wonder why so many people are still willing to cough it up. Yes, I always yell, your money or your life, and most people send it. Um, I think of all my own faults, the letters that I may have failed to answer, all the reasons why KPFA listeners may be irritated with me. Yes, there are those who think that I'm a royal pain in the posterior. I don't think I can say the other word. Things are being so stuffy these days. You know, the sort of people who can't stand it when I say phallocentric or jockocrat or, you know, all that that stuff. Uh, my favorite lately is, yes, I suffer from pronoun envy. That was my first and most favorite crack. But, you know, feminism is out of fashion, so I let it go. Now, today, yes, uh, I just wanted to confess that now as a volunteer, I have no secretary here. And I do have a, a terrible case of epistolophobia. <laughs> You know, I think it goes with the rheumatoid arthritis. I cannot lift the pen. And if I do, of course, I want to indulge in poetry. Anyway, um, if you have written to me and I have failed to respond, please forgive me. Yes, famous last words. Yes, forgive the errata. Forgive. Ah, forgive me. It's not possible to keep up a correspondence with the many KPFA listeners who have so many stories to tell. And they send me poetry and prose and, yes, share and tell, and I read every word. That, I promise you, uh, sometimes I just don't quite get organized. Uh, there are requests for tapes or even requests for my books, which I have mislaid. They came in and renovated my apartment at, uh, half my stuff has disappeared, uh, Anyway, the people who listen to this radio station are a very special group. Yes, arcane, esoteric, <laughs> a kind of a tribe, you know. The late, great Barbara Christian, a woman who taught at UC Berkeley, I remember one time I bumped into her on the bus, and I talked about the concept of tribalism, you know, how people have hardening of the categories and group think and all that. She said, Jennifer, we are in the smallest tribe of all. And I said, what tribe is that? She said, the literary tribe. <laughs> and it's shrinking all the time. 
Anyway, I think of the Pacifica tribe as a part of at least a compassionate tribe. Even when angry, they are compassionate. They listen. They are the yes people. There was a Zen pundit once who divided communities into four groups. He said there were the yes people, the no people, the yes and no people, and the neither yes nor no people. (laughs) Personally, I go for the both and folks as opposed to the either or folks, you know. Both truth and beauty. Poets say they're the same thing. I kind of, I kind of like to think, you know, sex and love, the same thing. Not exactly the same, but when they are, now that's ecstasy. The either or people are limited. Uh, they're usually right wingers. Now the left wing can be just as limited. Uh, I think of either or people, um, for us or against us, you know, I think of that as right wing, and then the lefties, they're the uh, all or nothing at all. Uh, yes, you know, they look at um, uh, so-called Democrat or progressive, and they find something wrong. You know, Hillary Clinton was on the board at Walmart, therefore she's the Antichrist. You know the sort of thing. Anyway, uh, I think of that as a failure of the imagination. Those people, uh, they have the laser look, you know. They see with only the one eye, the left eye or the right eye. They see the, uh, yes, either or, good or evil. They don't get the grays, the mixtures, the combinations, the blends. Uh, The artist sees with both eyes. And I hope the wise, liberal, progressive can see with both eyes and has that depth vision you get, you know. The right-wing reactionary sees only his own interests, his story, his truth, you know, like fundamentalists. Uh, It's a feudal mindset or anyway, uh, uh, out of date something. There's only loyalty, hierarchy, you know, problems are solved with punishment. You know, lock them up, throw away the key. Gertrude Stein once said that the feudal days were the days of the fathers. By that she meant the authoritarians, you know, the god guys, the king thing. It's the psychology of a patriarchal social order, you know, with God at the top, and then you go down and daddy, and then all the rest. At the extreme, this is the world of cruelty, even fascism. You know, uh, such people see compassion as nothing but weakness. Now, that's what we see today, uh, our administration. They have this infantile impulse to use a military solution for multiple problems, uh, social problems, for God's sakes. Uh, send in the Marines, you know. Most of the problems we have today demand complex solutions. You have to think, and oh, God, it hurts. Oh, it hurts to think. And to think twice is just agony. First and foremost, you know, we've got to be aware. Wake up, wake up. That's my favorite. Yes, the Zen slap. Every morning I get up and I think, where is the Zen slap going to come from today? Consciousness. Uh, I remember Stein, Gertrude Stein actually said that consciousness has replaced the soul. That's going a bit far, but I take her point. I think of all the curiosity that uh, most people have about human nature and how 
George Bush is characterized by an absolute and utter lack of any curiosity. Uh, we need to understand the other cultures, to know other men. We know so little of other people. Uh, we don't ask them either. We need to know other men and other women and how they feel about things. We need the ability to learn from them. There's a marvelous New Yorker cover I cut out and put on my wall. Three women. There's one in um, a burqa, one with her veil and so forth. And then there's a Christian nun. She has little glasses and cross and a nun's robe. And then there's in the middle, there's a, a Western woman who's uh, wearing little shorts and a halter. She's practically practically nude, uh, but she has huge dark insect glasses, right? <laughs> That's another way of hiding our psyche, right? Aha. Uh -huh. Anyway, all that stuff about uh, awareness and consciousness and learning and empathy is often described as feminine. The women claim that for themselves. Now, that could be or not. I think that's too narrow. I think it can be either masculine or feminine, if you want to use those words. Uh, I think they're out of date, actually. I mean, for example, I'm Irish and I never listen and I am female. Of course, I hear everything, but listening, I can't be caught dead listening. Truth is, peacemakers, caregivers are both genders. They come both genders. After all, remember, folks, Gandhi was a boy. Martin Luther King was a boy. Kind of depends on who you're talking about. Uh, the uh, peacemakers, the caregivers, they're the ones who know how to listen how to hear others, how to feel their pain for real. There's a piece that I was just reading last night by Engmar Bergman in which he describes artists and talks about how we are uh, too much individualists and bleating our individualism. We're in this pen like sheep uh, crying out uh, in loneliness and afraid to hear each other. He wrote that back when he uh, made the movie The Seventh Seal. Anyway, you know, the truth is that many left-wing folks are crushed by their empathy, by the sorrows of others. It breaks their hearts. Uh, the suffering of the world is not easy to watch. I remember not too long ago, uh, four in the morning or something, I was cracking up and I was reading an old history play by Shakespeare, one of those old queens, I think it was Queen Margaret, and uh, she had the best argument for dying, for suicide I've ever heard. She said, oh, oh, let me die, you know, to look on death no more. And it dawned on me that that is just about the easiest way out. Old Virginia Woolf said much the same thing before she checked out in 1941. She saw the war coming. And she heard voices, and she decided she couldn't watch, you know. Anyway, Buddhist wisdom, on the other hand, comes along to teach us joyful participation in the sorrows of this world. I'm working on that one, yes. Now, that's something that saints know all about. Joyful participation in the sorrows of the world what my mother used to call hand-holding. Yes, go be a hand-holder. Nurses and doctors and caregivers. 
The mothers of this world, the parents, the loving fathers. I used to try to say, well, I used to say that um, nothing would change until fathers love their children more than they hate their enemies. There are such fathers, and they do try. Uh, joyful participation in the sorrows of the world, it comes in so many styles. Some of you participate by supporting this radio station, and we thank you, thank you, thank you. Some people just reach out to everyone as they do their, what we call that, earth walk, as they go from uh, one to the other, you know, um, what is that, house by the side of the road. <laughs> go out and mill around and see who needs help. Last week, I ran across, uh, across a compassionate anesthesiologist, anis, anis, can't pronounce that, I had to undergo a colonoscopy, just like George W. Bush. <laughs> imagine, imagine empathizing with George. I also had to have an upper GI exam, gastrointestinal. Um, my esophagus is a mess. You know, they give you pictures now. I took them home and put them on the walls. I'm thinking of using them for Christmas cards. Anyway... Like George, uh, I've got some polyps, but no cancer. Lucky me. Anyway, I mention this only because it is an easy procedure, and I recommend it, especially if you have an anesthesiologist who is as kind as mine was. Uh, it's a good diagnostic procedure. Uh, <laughs> my anesthesiologist knocked me out. I was completely gone. I don't remember anything, certainly not the indignity. I talked with him before he gave me my happy juice, and uh, I talked about the fear so many people have of this procedure, how the, the late actor Charles Lawton died uh, of colon cancer. Rather than submit to an exam, his wife, uh, the remarkable actress Elsa Lancaster, she talked about this after Charles Lawton died. Perhaps, I don't know, he was gay. Perhaps that had something to do with his fears and humiliation in any case. She talked about it in the hopes that people would uh, not be afraid uh, of the procedure, uh, that they wouldn't uh, risk their lives. Uh, my anesthesiologist said that he hears that all the time, he said. People are always saying they would rather die than have a colonoscopy. He replied, well, he said, I tell him that can be arranged. Tough love in the OR. Now, that's my kind of guy. Just like uh, my kind of artist. Tough love, the late, great Engmar Bergman, who has died at age 89. Oh, gosh, I want to spend a whole bunch of time on the compassionate works of that master builder, I'll do that next Tuesday um, as well. Angmar Bergman has always felt like, I guess, a, f what do you call that, mentor, forefather. Uh, when I think of him, I think of the, the great Scandinavians, uh, Ibsen, uh, not just Ibsen, but um, uh, Strindberg, all the Scandinavian writers, uh, most people think of him as just the guy who made those 
dreadful movies, you know, the test in the 1950s. Test of a new boyfriend was, could he sit through an Angmar Bergman picture? <laughs> I, I still think the best story I've heard is Liv Ullman saying she, um, uh, when she was with Angmar Bergman, he came down in the morning to tell his nightmares and then ask her to act in them. <laughs> anyway, uh, check out your uh, PBS stations. There's an interview with Dick Cavett that's been running. Uh, Dick Cavett and Angmar Bergman have some marvelous things to say to each other. Uh, about the color of the soul, right, the color of the soul, Angmar Bergman has followed me around all my life. He's what I call a touchstone. He uses a medieval man as a metaphor. You remember the seventh seal. Uh, I remember each Bergman movie moved me along, uh, uh, took me to a new place. Virgin Spring was perhaps the greatest shock. I'll tell you a story now because the principals involved are dead. Uh, I took a perpetrator, a uh, a cousin, uh, an abuser, uh, someone uh, who committed crimes against me when I was ten. I took him to see the Virgin Spring because it's a hideous story of a rape and murder. I wanted to get his reaction. He walked out. Uh, that was a shocking event. But talk about psychoanalysis. Talk about a psychodrama. Uh, nobody but Engmar Bergman can do these things. Um, I recommend Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light. There's a movie called The Brink of Life, which is all about women in an obstetrics ward. I never see that one on television. I don't even know if it's around anymore. It's called The Brink of Life. And I remember sitting in the Elmwood movie right here in Berkeley, seven months pregnant, sitting through that movie, and I was afraid to stand up afterwards and let people see that I was pregnant. All of his best actresses, the uh, the uh, troupe, the group that he had uh, in those early days, uh, were in the film. There was the girl who had tried to abort herself. There was the woman who was unable to have a living child. There was another who had miscarried and so forth. And, you know, the doctors, the men come and uh, they're living on another plane in another reality. And these women go through the agonies of the damned and then they put back on their public social faces and walk out of the OB ward. Uh, the ultimate in, uh, I guess, feminist sensibility is Engmar Bergman's movie Cries and Whispers. That one helped us to uh, isolate uh, <laughs> women, yes, 19th century women. The loss of faith. Not that most women buy the notion that life is hell, but uh, it was nice to get equal time, you know, with the medieval men. Uh, anyway, The Seventh Seal and Cries and Whispers are probably the two quintessential books. Uh, I've got to start pitching here, people, because, <laughs> dear... Um, I have a book, I have a movie book, which I may be able to make available at a later date if the printer will give me some. And I have an essay on Angmar Bergman called The Master Builder, which I would like to read next Tuesday, but I don't have time 
today to do that, darn it. I need to, uh, oh, and also I wanted to read you some of Liv Ullman's book, Changing, in which she describes Engmar Bergman's uh, internal life, his problems, the Stone Age island that they lived on at Pharaoh, her little girl Lynn, all these good things about Engmar Bergman. Uh, but I do have a premium. So I've got, I've got to, in my fragmented way, pull this book up and wave it at you in hopes that you will want a copy enough to get a $60 membership. And I'm looking to see if there are any little lights lighting up. Uh, we've only got six minutes, people. Our number here is in the five and dime area code, 510. 510- 848-5732, that's 1-800-HEY-KPFA, or 1-800, if you're far away, 439-5732. And the book that I'm offering you today as a premium is just a little memoir called Telegraph Avenue Then. There's a picture on the front taken in the Blind Lemon Bar, I think. Back in the day, as we say now, back in the day. And then there's a picture on the back, a picture of me taken by the late great photographer Paul Outerbridge. And I'll read you my publicity. Publishers Weekly says, Intensely readable, unpredictable style, energetic, appealing voice. Library Journal says, Marvelous, exciting language. Small Press Review says Stone is a master of the one-liner. Honesty is her only religion. Well, it's not my only religion. I have dozens of religions. I'm not exclusive, never have been. No, no, I believe in everything. I I read Jean-Paul Sartre when I was a young woman, and I decided that you could believe in everything or nothing. So I picked everything. It seemed uh, more fun. Anyway, let's see. Uh... The women's newspaper Plexus reviewed this book, and they wrote, Like walking a cluttered beach with a new friend, Stone's gift of selecting an object or incident as an epiphany, a sudden piercing realization or transcendence, approaches the surreal. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. How clever this is. I will sign these. I will put them in the the subscription room and sign them. Uh, Telegraph Avenue Then by Jennifer Stone. You can actually write to me for copies of my uh, titles, titles of my books. This is published by Regent Press here in Berkeley. Uh, it came out in 1992 and the second printing was just this year. And there's a long list of all the people who published bits and pieces of this. This is a, what do you call that? A gathering up of all the riches, yes. All this stuff. Uh, scraps, bits and pieces. Trust the fragments. There are uh, bits and scraps from the Wormwood Review, Vagabond Press, uh, Plexus Open City on the Bus Minotaur, City Minor Magazine, Beyond Baroque, uh, Berkeley Poetry Review, The Berkeley Barb, Backbone, Appeal to Reason, on and on and on and on. I won't read you all that. Okay. In memory of my father, born 1902, died 1961. Aha, yes. Let's look at the foreword to this book. Um, 
I need somebody to call in. I'm looking here to see if I have any little red lights going on, folks. Uh, uh, Jim, you have... Oh, I have two callers. Jim says I have two callers. Okay. Number here, 510-848-5732. And the other number is 1-800-439-5732. Let me read you just a little paragraph of the foreword. Someone once wrote, only the dead tell the truth, and then not for some years. So too, my journal, the record of the past, tells the truth if you let it soak long enough. Over time, flesh falls from the bones, and we get to the marrow of things. Our myths marinate, and the symbols come to the surface. What happened is only history, what matters is mythos. Well, maybe next week I'll have time to read you some more of this. It's basically uh, life in Berkeley, my favorite sojourns at the Café Med on Telegraph Avenue. Oh, those were the years. This book dates from 1966 to 1977. And uh, it was first published as Loose Leaves from a Little Black Book. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. This September, the Pacifica National Board and local delegate assemblies will vote on several proposed amendments to the Pacifica bylaws. These amendments would extend the terms of local station board members from three to four years and offer options for changing the term limits for local board members. The amendments would also change the dates of the election process within each election year. If the Pacifica National Board and three of the five local delegate assemblies pass the term,